Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. If you came in this morning, you did not grab Lord's Supper elements on the table. Go ahead and stand up now and go get them. This is the time to do it. There will not be a further chance to do it now. So at the end of the service, I'm going to go naturally from the sermon into the Lord's Supper. So don't worry. There's lots of people with you like you. It's funny, the first week we did this, nobody missed it because it was something new. Now it's becoming white noise. You don't even see the massive table as you come in. But hopefully you got the elements and you have them in your uh, possession. At the end of the service, we'll naturally go into taking the Lord's Supper. So we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And in this text, one of Jesus' main points to his disciples is that we should use our privilege... To bless the underprivileged. That's Jesus' main point. Therefore, that is my main point. We should use our privilege to bless the underprivileged. Now let's get real for a minute. How many of you just, the hair on the back of your neck just stood up. And the word itself just inflamed you. And you've already decided, I'm going to figure out which camp he's in. And I'm going to decide either I love him or I hate him. Because of the word privilege. Don't be too honest. Don't say it out loud. Think about it. There's a good chance that immediately upon hearing the word privilege, you judge me as belonging to a certain camp and it either thrills you or infuriates you. You hear the word privilege and you think, oh, he's woke. And you think about the problem of white privilege and you either are thrilled that you think I am, or you're infuriated that you think I am. Obviously, the term privileged is a charged term in our culture. Well, that's the the beauty of expositional preaching. I don't get to choose what I preach on. I work through books of the Bible and decide, I mean, I reveal what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus wants us to talk about today is this concept of privilege. Now, I'm saying all this up front because I want you to hear what God has to say. I'm inviting you, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you not to put words into my mouth. I am intentionally not being political, intentionally not making a statement along those lines. I'm trying my best to just expose, that's what expositional preaching is, expose what the text is saying, and then we all grapple with that. How do we obey God's word. So please grant me any grace. If it sounds like I'm trying to be political or a camp, I'm not. I'm just trying to understand what Jesus wants us to do and trying to lead us to obey him. Now before we get started, this does lead me to make a few pastoral points about how to live in this culture that we live in. So I ask for your permission because this is not exposing a text. This is me as a pastor saying, let's think about some things. How should we respond when we feel we are being attacked as Christians? Whether it's on these issues, someone's screaming or blogging or a political candidate is saying things and we feel attacked, whichever side being, what does Jesus say to do when we feel someone is treating us as an enemy? To love our enemies. So both sides of the issue, whether we feel we're being attacked or whether we feel our case is not being heard or our injustices that we're experiencing aren't being appreciated, 
either side of the aisle, either side of the issue, needs to hear God's word on how we respond. And God's response is that we should love our enemies. We should be loving. Now, I think a helpful verse that we can kind of plaster all over our house is speak the truth in love. I think that's helpful because sometimes when I talk about love, I think some of you hear, so we're just supposed to lay down and take all this unbiblical stuff. No, we're called to speak the truth. And some people stop there and celebrate that. Yes, I love speaking the truth, at least my truth. And we forget it's speak God's truth and speak it in love. To have all our words be seasoned with, seasoned with grace and kindness and mercy and love and compassion. And listening. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, the Bible says. And so I would encourage us all in this culture that is so divided and so passionate and so built up against each other with everybody just spewing venom toward each other can we be different that's what Jesus has been teaching the kingdom of God is so different during the snowpocalypse if you tuned in to the message last week the last point of God's kingdom was it's countercultural. It's not like the world. It's not the way the world operates. That we should not look and act and sound like the world. Our blogs, our posts, our messages should not sound like them. So even if you feel like you're being attacked or being ignored, Jesus says, speak the truth in love. If, if your spouse, if you're married or or your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever your situation may be, if someone you love came into the house and was screaming, ah, this is what I feel, this is the way, this is what is going on. If you love them, you're not going to just say, well, you're in this camp. You're going to listen and go, what is going on underneath this screaming there's a pain point there. And I care about this person. So I'm going to listen wisely. I'm going to discern. I'm going to see what I can understand is underneath the screaming. Even if they're attacking me. Which makes it hard. But a wise, godly spouse will listen and say, okay, clearly there's hurt here. What can I do to own my role in this but what can I understand is underneath the pain that is godly that's what God calls us to do that's what the church needs to be doing in this culture right now is using discernment be smarter than that listen what is going on with this situation don't just dehumanize them and throw them into a camp and brain them, woke or not woke, liberal or conservative. Because when you dehumanize them, you don't have to care about them. You don't have to love them. You don't have to serve them. And we got to quit doing that. Jesus is walking around town teaching us what his kingdom is like. And that's what he's saying, things like that. I could say much more, but... And I will a little bit throughout the message as it relates to the text. But love requires listening. Hardly anyone's listening these days. 
listening to understand what the other person is experiencing or feeling. I believe that's half the battle. So let's start listening. Truly listening before we speak and after we speak. And when we do speak, let's make sure that what we're saying is in line with God's word. Speak the truth of God in love. Speaking of listening, I pray that you will listen to what God has to say. This morning, Father God, I ask for your help listening to what you have to say to us about this topic that is very culturally charged this morning. Lord, would you give us ears to hear what you say? Would you protect my words, Lord, that, that my personality or any sinful point of view, that will, you will protect the body from that? And that you would teach us as we sit around this dinner table with you and you're teaching us about your kingdom. That we may obey. And we need your spirit to empower us to obey and to live according to your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, we're going to be in Luke 14, 7. We're skipping through, but I'm keeping the context in mind. As we get to four, verse 7 of chapter 14... All these passages have in common a banquet or a dinner table. This is like Jesus' lunch and learn. If you're in the business world, you go to lunch and learn. This is Jesus' lunch and learn or table talk. He's going to talk around the table, having some good, important table talk about what his kingdom is like. And we're going to extract from this four commandments for how God's people should live in his kingdom. The first we find in verse 7. He says, now Luke tells us, Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited to this banquet, to this dinner, when he noticed, when Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor at the table. Stop there. So Jesus is sitting at the dinner table at this banquet. And, and he noticed when people were coming in and choosing their seats, that they were all clamoring for the seats of honor, the place of privilege at the banquet, at the dinner table. And this prompts him to say, okay, I got some teaching to do here. So he says to them, quote, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit in the place of honor. Don't take the place of privilege. Don't presume that that privileged place is for you, is what he's saying. When you're invited, don't go straight to that place lest something really embarrassing happens. Lest someone more distinguished than you is invited by him and he is invited and both will come to say to you, hey man, you need to give your chair up for this guy. He has more honor than you. And then you'll be, in, getting it, you'll be with shame and you'll have to go take the lowest place. That would be totally embarrassing. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. This is how Jesus is saying this is how we should live. When you come to a place, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. Now, each one of these sections we're going to look at, there's this punch right at the end that really summarizes what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So command number one for the kingdom of God, how we should live in the kingdom is humble yourself. Eat some humble pie, which no one likes, and it always is bitter. But he says, eat some humble pie, humble yourself. That's the way my people live. As Christians, we must not get caught up in the cultural practices 
of our day. We do not live clamoring for honor, clamoring for status, clamoring to be thought highly in the community. We must fight that desire to clamor for status, for position, for privilege, especially at the cost of others. That's the society's way of doing things, that I will exalt myself as I step on the heads of others, and I don't care what it costs them because I am gaining status and privilege. Jesus is sitting around a banquet watching this going on. He's like, are you kidding me? And you want to be my disciples? That's not how it works in my kingdom, not at my banquet feast. That's not how it's going to go. So as believers, we must, must not be driven by the hunger, the desire, the insatiable appetite to be honored by men and women. How do we avoid this trap? The gospel is the only way to be set free from it. The gospel is the key. And here's how it works. That Jesus adopts you. When you put your faith in Christ and he says you're forgiven of your sins because you're trusting in Jesus... He adopts you as his son, as his daughter. Who is he? He's God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he bestows upon you the family name. All the honor you will ever want is already yours in Christ. You don't have to clamor for status. You don't have to clamor for name. You don't have to clamor for these things that we desire. He says it's all already yours in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, it's yours. So you are free now to humble yourselves as you await the day that your full honor in Christ is revealed. And that's the key that comes up over and over as we think about the kingdom of God. There is an initial version of the kingdom that we experience now, but it's not perfect yet. It's got a lot of sin contamination going on in this world. But we see that in the end that there's going to be a great banquet feast that Jesus is going to come back and his disciples are going to experience a massive, incredible banquet feast where all the royalty sit with the king and enjoy his eternal king where there is no sickness, there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no injustice, there is no privilege and underprivilege. That is all finally the way it should be. And we get a glimpse of this when we watch Jesus because where Jesus is, is the power, the reign, the rule of Jesus, of the kingdom is happening. So when Jesus walks up to a sick person, what happens? Sickness is gone. When Jesus walked to a demon-possessed person, the demon's gone. When Jesus walks into a room and there's this nauseating, clamoring for glory and status and, and all this, he says, this ends wherever he is. And so he's saying, when we watch the Gospels, we see Jesus, we see a glimpse of the final version of the kingdom. Until then, it's our role as his children to help that final version grow and experience here through the church where we help people live according to the reign and the rule of Jesus. So that's the kingdom of God. So it begins with us humbling ourselves in our families, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in society, on our blogs. Humble should be what people think of when they read our blogs. Humble. That should be the overarching characteristic of our words and our speech and our blogs. 
humble like Christ. Not divisive. Humble yourself. Humble myself. After telling this parable, Jesus brings it home to the man who actually invited him to the table. Jesus does not get political correctness. He turns to the guy who invited him to this banquet, verse 12, and he said to the man who invited him, Bro, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. You know they're just going to invite you in return so that you can be repaid. That's not the way it works in my kingdom. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the lame and the blind. Listen to what he says. It's just like, wait, what? Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. <laughs> it's countercultural, y'all. You'll be blessed because they can't repay you. That's not how our culture works. Our culture says, invite those who can repay you. Invite the social elite because then you'll look like you're a social elite. And then they'll invite you to theirs. And you'll be in the in crowd. And you'll have status. And you'll have privilege. And you'll have power. And Jesus says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. Invite those who can't repay you, who don't have power, who don't have privilege, who aren't the elite, and you'll be blessed because you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the life. You'll be repaid at the end when we're at his banquet table. So the second command from this is bless the underprivileged. Bless the underprivileged. With whatever privilege you have, bless the underprivileged. The first century Rome is no different than us. The banquet system was the powerful invite the powerful, and the most powerful sat at the head of the banquet table, and the little minions file in their proper places, and you know if you're at the back, no offense back there, you know if you're at the back, you're not as honored as the one up front. And if you invite some really powerful people, everybody's going to want to come. And if you get on the end list, they're going to invite you to theirs. And you're going to build your, your status. They're going to build their status. And the powerful are going to get powerful. We're going to be like, this is good. I like this as long as I'm at the banquet. But we need to understand his kingdom is about spiritual power built on sacrifice, not status. This is an age-old fallen humanity problem, not just a new American problem. It's always been this way. Sinful humanity creates systems that build and exalt self and give self-power. But Jesus changes everything. But the only way to do this, the only way to do the very costly thing of emptying yourself of status and privilege and power and position is the gospel. In Ephesians 1, we already have read that together as a church. 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's already yours. 
What are you clamoring for? Every single spiritual, I know I'm putting single in there, but it's implied. Every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all that is Jesus Christ is yours. You have his status. You have his honor. He calls you a saint. You're forgiven. You have an inheritance, Paul goes on to explain, that you are adopted into his family. You were underprivileged and you had nothing and he adopted you. He chose you. He pulls you into his family. He lavishes you with his love. He seals you, guaranteeing you this massive future inheritance will be yours. He raised you up already, seated you with him in the place of honor in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. And then having said all of that, he says, now, because that's all yours in Christ, go and do the things I prepared in advance for you to do. Bless the underprivileged. Remember that you were once the underprivileged spiritually. And he blessed you with all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places. We have got to be different than this culture. So let me try to apply this. So hang with me here. Test and see if what I'm saying aligns with God's word. Because that's all that matters. If it does, then you have to obey it. If it doesn't, then come tell me where I got it wrong. We begin first by admitting that we are privileged. And we acknowledge that that privilege has come from God. In our culture, if you don't like the word privilege, then let's go with blessed. Okay? So again, by admitting that you are blessed in ways that others are not blessed. We are not all blessed equally. <gasps> How dare God? But we are not all blessed equally. We are all blessed undeservedly. But we must examine our lives and ask, how am I to use this blessing and this privilege that God has given me that others don't have how can I bless them with that? I'm saying that spiritually we are the most blessed people on the planet. But also, in many cases, financially, economically, socially, in every sense of the word, most of us are blessed beyond most people on the planet. Now, is it Jesus' way to then say to someone who says, screaming, I have hurts and pains, for us to say, you're a liberal. I don't have to help you. Or you're a conservative. I don't have to help you. You're not woke. You are woke. Y'all, we got to be smarter than this. We got to rise above this. We're called to something so much higher. There's a greater kingdom. We can't get down in the mud with them. 
Listen carefully, please. The gospel is not, not primarily about social justice. The gospel is about God's justice. How does a God get justice with those who have sinned against him? How can God bring guilty sinners into the presence of a holy God? He's got to let them forgive. He's got to forgive them but still be just. How does he do that? He punished his own son. He took upon himself the penalty that we deserved. He satisfies his justice and gives us forgiveness all at once. It's glorious. That's the gospel. So the gospel is about that, not primarily social justice. But the gospel does not turn a blind eye to social justice. Because if you say you have Jesus as your Savior, then you will care about people's injustices. You can't say Jesus is the solution to social justice Trust Jesus, but I don't give a flip about your social injustice. Because if Jesus cares about it and you're a follower of Jesus, then you'll care about it. So here's what I'm saying. The problem is not white privilege. It goes way deeper than that. That's not far enough. The problem is we have spiritual privilege in Christ that we're not sharing with the underprivileged. And as we share Christ with them, we will also be addressing the more practical elements of injustice. But if Jesus calls us to do this, then we must share the truth in love. Stand for the truth. Don't compromise, but do it in love. Everyone. The privileged and the unprivileged are sinners and need to be reborn in Christ. And that's our truth. Everyone needs to know we're not going to have perfect justice until he returns. And if you want perfect justice, it happens when he gathers his children around the banquet table. Everyone needs to be pointed to Christ. But as we do that... We need to love them, the rich, the poor, all the above, and we need to care about their hurts and pains. So what does this look like? How do you do this? So many ways. Big, powerful, beautiful, costly way, adoption. So pleased to see that in our church so many families loving well that way. So many more being trained up to do foster care. It's incredible. It's beautiful. But let me just give you some low-hanging fruit to start with. Friendship. Let's just start with the friendship. Why do I say that? Well, let me use an analogy that's not too big a stretch. Let's say that you have more privileged than I have a lot of you do a lot of you have a lot of money 
more than I have. And we've become friends because I've been your pastor. And you know what you've done? You have been an awesome friend to me and my family. I am so blessed. I, I got vacation homes everywhere. I got one in the mountains, one on the, two or three on the beach. I got them everywhere. I got camps. I got farms. I got, it's crazy how blessed I am. I'm actually more blessed than one of you individually because I have the blessings of all of you corporately. It's crazy how good you are to me. If my daughter needs a job, I'm going, who knows somebody? I admit it. And I'm calling, hey, my daughter's trying to get in PA school. Anything you can do to help? Yeah, let me call so-and-so. Let me call so-and-so. Now, I'll tell you, she's worked hard. She deserves it and earns it, but that does, that's not enough always. It helps to know people. And so I'm calling and working the phones. And you are kind and you bless me. Because that's what you do because you're loving and you're my friend. That's all we're talking about. The question is, do you have a friendship with anyone who's not what his words, Jesus' words, your rich neighbor? Right? That's what he said. Don't just invite your rich neighbors. Invite the poor. Do you have a friendship with anyone who would be considered underprivileged? Not so that you can just take them on as a project because they're your friend. That's a good place to start. Can you mentor them? Help their children understand how to behave? What you did for me and my children. Help them fill out a job application, be a reference, call some, make some phone calls, help their kids get into a college, help them get a job. Help them prepare for their interview. You've done it for me. You do a great job of it. We just need to have friends outside our own little private banquet. That's what Jesus is saying. And as you do it, another thing you're going to share with them is Jesus. Because that's what you do with your friends. So it's not like this agenda thing. It's just who you are, and that's what you do with friends. So the question is, make friends with people who aren't your rich neighbors, is what Jesus is saying. Humble yourself, bless the underprivileged. Number three, verse 15. When one of those reclined, who was reclined at the table heard him say these things, he said to him, now I don't really know how to act this out, because I'm really not sure what this dude was thinking. So he's listening to Jesus, he's kicking back, listening, and he goes, Oh, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread of the kingdom of God. I think by the way Jesus responds, he's basically saying, I'm just glad I'm going to be at that kingdom table. That's all I know, Jesus, is I'm glad I'm going to be at your banquet, right? And Jesus says in verse 16, Well, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many people. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Hey, y'all, come on, everything's ready. But they all began to make excuses. First said, Hey, I bought a field, I got to go check on it. 
please excuse me. Another said, hey, I bought five oxen, I got to go examine them, please excuse me. Another said, hey, I got married, I, I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master, and the master of the house got angry and said to his servant, well, then go out quickly to the streets and the lanes in the city and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant said, sir, we've already done that, and still there's more room. And the master said, well, then go out the highways, hedges, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, punch, for I tell you none of these men were invited, who were invited shall taste my banquet. What's he saying? I think what he's saying is don't make excuses. Our third command, don't make excuses. A lot of people who think that they are going to be at that final banquet with Jesus are going to be sadly discover that they were not invited. Don't make excuses. Hear what Jesus is saying. Embrace Jesus and what he's saying about the nature of his kingdom, and embrace it such that when you trust in Jesus and are filled with the Spirit, it starts to show up in how you live. If you go through life making excuses about why you're not obeying Jesus, then don't be surprised when you show up at the banquet and you don't have an invite. That's what Jesus is saying. So don't make excuses. Don't say, oh, that's just a liberal theology, a liberal teaching. I'm not going to do that. Oh, that's just for the conservatives that think they've got it all figured out. I'm not going to do that. Those are excuses that do not indicate fruit of God's Spirit working in us. It means we can't ignore His clear teaching. We must humble ourselves. Bless the underprivileged and stop making excuses. And our final command is in verse 25. Luke says, oh, now great crowds accompanying him. And as Jesus would do, turns to them and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. He is not into the latest marketing schemes. He's like, these people aren't getting it. There's too many people wanting to follow me. Y'all don't understand. I'm telling you. Now, what is he saying with this hyperbole, this language? Let's understand. Use your brain. Jesus is not saying literally to hate them. We know Jesus teaches love yourself because he says love others as you love yourself. We know he wants you to love your family. We know he says honor your father and mother. So what is he saying? He's saying, point number four, put Jesus first. Put Jesus first. If your mother and father tell you to disobey Jesus, you choose Jesus. If your mother and father love Jesus, you won't have to make that choice. They'll say, obey Jesus before you obey me. Put Jesus first in everything. What he's saying is there's, there's this too many times there's this category in our life is Jesus, religion, Christianity, and then there's all these other categories, and he's one of the categories, and Jesus says, that's not how it works. I am the category. All things fit into that category and come into submission to him and his teaching. All things. Put Jesus first. And then he says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's saying that this will be costly. He's on a journey to Jerusalem where he is suffering greatly and he will die on the cross giving himself, all of himself, that you may have life. And he says that's what it means if you're following me very physically. I'm walking through persecution to die and if you're going to follow me, you'll walk through persecution. It's a following of costly, cross-living, cruciform life of sacrifice. Therefore, you should count the cost. And that's where he goes next, 28. To the crowds wanting to follow him. He says, count the cost for which of you desire to build a tower. Does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he laid the foundation and was not able to finish, then all who saw him began to mock him saying, this man began and was not able to finish. What a fool. Or what king goes out to encounter a king in war will not sit down first, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to come against 20,000. And if not, then he'll be smart and he'll send off a delegation and ask for terms of peace. Count the cost. Know what you're getting into. That's what Connection Group is all about. It's six weeks of saying, know what you're getting into. Who could ever build a church telling people, are you sure you want to do this? That's what Jesus is doing. You need to know what you're getting into. I, Jesus says, am first among everyone and everything. And my kingdom is radically different and countercultural. To everything you see in this world. His kingdom is not about using power and privilege and status to exalt yourself. His kingdom is about humbling yourself. Sacrificing whatever privilege, status, and power you have. To bless the underprivileged. Not to make excuses. But to put Jesus first in every single area of your life. Verse 33. Here's the punch for this section. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All. Renounce it all. Lay it all at his feet. It's all there in service of Jesus. That's the only way. I want you to keep that in mind as we approach the Lord's table. Imagine the teaching scene has been all about gathering around the table with Jesus. This Lord's Supper scene is, a, is, is imagining we're all sitting. Just imagine there's this one big old banquet table and we're all sitting around it. And the thing that unites us is... Jesus, we've trusted in Jesus, we trust, trusted his body and his blood as the only way to be made right with God. And we're sitting at the table. One final pastoral point here. Can you sit at the table with anyone who's trusting in Christ? Or are you like, let me check your invitation to see what your political party is first. Or let me see what terms you're using. Let me read your blog post first. Or are you willing to sit at the table with anyone who says, I'm trusting solely in the body and blood of Jesus Christ to be declared righteous before God, who is holy? This week in community group, as we discuss this, can everyone in your community group talk openly and freely about this topic without being afraid of what you're going to think or being afraid of being branded? The body and blood of Jesus Christ unites. If I had a loaf of bread, I would take a piece and hand it to each person. 
one loaf, Jesus Christ, many people participating in that oneness. There's a oneness. If I had one jug, one cup, and I was pouring into each one of you a little bit of that juice, symbolizing there's one Jesus and his blood unites all of us. It's a weird, weird expression of it, but here it is. Open the lids, if you will, pull out the, the wafer on the top, and then there's a second layer to expose the juice so that you can have it when you need it. Who can participate in the Lord's Supper? You don't have to be a member of this particular church, but you do need to be trusting solely in the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are, then you are encouraged to participate. We'll take elements together, so wait on the body to take the bread and the juice together. Lord, as we enter into this gathering around your table, we ask that you'll reveal to us our sin. Help us apply the teaching this morning. Give us your love. Give us your willingness to listen to others. Help us to hear the pain and the source of the pain underneath. Help us to have friends beyond our normal paths of life. Friends that need our love, who need Jesus, who we will naturally share with and naturally bless with resources. Lord, reveal to us now in the quiet moments sin that we need to confess and agree with you that that is sin and I need to turn from that and as we drink the juice and take the bread we are confessing that you cover that you forgive that by your sacrifice search our hearts O Lord reveal to us any unclean matters Right before Jesus went to the cross, he met with his disciples around a table. It was the night he was betrayed. He took the loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to any individuals there, and he said, this is my body. Referring to the fact that his body was pierced on the cross as punishment for their sin. This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and together they ate the bread. We eat this bread symbolizing that our faith is only in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be forgiven. That's the only way to be declared right with God. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It represents the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no other way to have your sins forgiven than to trust that Jesus' blood covers your sin he said do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me and together they drank Lord you said as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Lord that's what we're doing as we await your final return we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ we're remembering that it is your body and your blood shed for us that gives us forgiveness. 
that you gave us privilege that we did not deserve and did not have. And Lord, we look forward to the day, the glorious day, where we are gathered around your banquet table, your feast, having a great joyful feast in your presence. And we look around and there's all types of people from all walks of life, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation. And we're all singing praises to you. And we live in a just kingdom to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.